0: Hello, I'm Jimmy Ronald and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto and we gather friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship and society and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS.
1: Hello. I'm Héctor Lacero Ferrer, a junior member at ICS and the Associate Director of the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics. Joining us today is our guest Jennifer Bowen, Executive Director of Shalem Mental Health Network, a faith-based organization that provides responsive and preventative mental health support to individuals, families, and communities. At ICS, Our students, faculty, and staff have access to Shalem's services through their counseling assistance plan for students' CAPS. Welcome, everyone. Today we have with us Jennifer Bowen, Executive Director of Shalem Mental Health Network. Um, Jennifer, welcome.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: So we've decided at Critical Faith to um, invite Jennifer to talk to us about um, a collaboration we've done with them in the past, um, but also to tell us a little bit more about uh, what Shalem is, um, how how we are connected beyond just that collaboration, and also uh, ways in which we can all benefit from the wisdom that comes out of um, the work that Shalem and Jennifer do. Jennifer, uh, do you mind just telling us something about Shalem, about Shalem's about Shalim, place within uh, Canada's uh, network of mental health?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, And I do appreciate this invitation because I agree that there are many, many ways. I'm sure that there are dozens of people over the past few decades that were connected. ICS and and Shalem, and I don't have all of their stories in front of me, but I know that we go way back. Um, So I'm I'm Jennifer. I've been I've had the pleasure and delight of leading this organization for the past couple of years. I stepped into the role of executive director and Shalem uh, is a wonderful organization. is a wonderful place. I can't take a lot of credit for it because so much, so many good things happened before I came. Uh, this is our 60th year, so around 60 years ago, and, and I think this is part of our shared history. Some folks that emigrated from the Netherlands had um, a passion for building and wanting to equip the community with Christian resources. Um, I think that they part of our inception was that they this group of people were aware of an excellent resource in in michigan called uh pine rest which is a psychiatric hospital so they got permission from the government to open a psychiatric hospital Um, that was right around for people who have studied psychology 101 right around the time that residential psychiatric treatment was going out of vogue so that group of people thought no let's let's embed mental health in the community so they opened a massive network of offices in in communities, the small cities and towns across Ontario, that pivoted about 20 years ago instead to programming across Ontario. And now it's across Canada, equipping churches and schools and nonprofits on how to weave mental health um, into what they do on equipping them to care for their communities around mental health needs and relationship needs. And as I read publications in past decades, I hear the, the voice of those from ICS. I hear the deep philosophical um, belief in how, the, I hear Kuiper, <laughs> I hear Abraham Kuiper in how um, God is in all things and he is part of our mental health journey and excellence in mental health is is a form of worship and service to God. So that, that very much is our calling. So much so, Hector, you'll find this funny, that when I was hired, my predecessor, who you know and love as well, gave me five books <laughs> that were Abraham Kuyper books to say, if you wanna understand our theological and philosophical roots, dive deep into this man. Um, this is this is a space that we occupy wanting to serve God in this particular sphere. And uh, so you when you walk down our halls, you hear values of learning because everyone wants to bring in new speakers and learn all the time. We always have master students who are studying alongside us. Um, and you hear you hear a passion for for development and, and excellence, as well as living alongside our mission of, of caring for people. So so many so many intersections. I'm sure that I don't know about. And there may be people listening that think, "Oh yeah, I know Shalem. <laughs> uh, we our families benefited from their services. I get those emails all the time."
1: Thank yeah. you, uh, Jennifer. We can we can keep talking about that. And if there is anything else that comes up along the way in terms of the specific programming of Shalem, um we'll, we'll dive into, into it as well. But um, in the meantime, maybe to give our listeners a sense of why are we inviting you here to, the, to this podcast um, of the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, um, in addition to the connection that exists between the communities that support shalem and that support ics um so this will require a little bit of uh history um so uh three years ago already we started a process um that we've We've given it several names, and one of them was Philosophy Otherwise. And Philosophy Otherwise was a, a series of initiatives connected um, to our desire to decolonize our practice, decolonize our scholarship, decolonize our pedagogy, decolonize our ways of interacting with one another, trying to find ways to hear different voices, um, to have those difficult conversations that, that are connected to that process of um, inheriting a tradition, but uh, have the tradition speak in new ways to, to new, group, new groups. And um, part of that a process called philosophy otherwise um, was a, a colloquium. We did a colloquium um, in-house just for our junior members, our students, and our senior members, our faculty, um, with four world-class thinkers, people from different places in the world, um, telling us what they had done in terms of decolonizing their own practices. Um, so philosophers, theologians, artists, and um, it, the overwhelming feedback we got from them and from everybody who participated in, in the colloquium was that uh, we needed to learn how to listen, um, to listen in different ways. And that's always a challenge because we are we talk a lot about Notions that um are connected to the act of listening itself, but we are not really trained in listening. and And it was in that in that part of the process that we we decided uh, we needed to engage someone or something, an organization that that could help us along the way um, to figure out how to listen better, how to have those conversations. In a way that was more fruitful and uh, it occurred to us immediately uh, that Shalem uh, with the expertise that Shalem has around um, difficult conversations about around uh, relational health and um, that that was the right connection especially because Shalem also knows our own uh, tradition and knows how to speak to our to our group so Jennifer Uh, was invited as the the executive director of Shalem to speak to us in our conference that we had last summer, Um, Difficult Conversations, Difficult Journeys, Difficult Justice. Jennifer did a a wonderful uh, workshop for us on difficult conversations and uh, perhaps I'll, this has been a long, a long uh, little uh, sidebar, but I just to, to place all this conversation within the larger conversation. So I want to invite Jennifer to, to tell us a bit about what that workshop was all about and what informed, um, what informed you, um, even as that, those, those, that wisdom.
2: Yeah, yeah. I remember getting that email from you, Hector, and uh, I remember a really invigorating conversation. Um, I think I was surprised that you, you as philosophers were turning to uh, the mental health field to ask about listening, because I thought there must be brilliance. <laughs> There must be wonderful books that talk about this from from your profession and what you I remember what you were interested in was what we as a profession have learned about in a very nitty gritty concrete way around our nervous systems. Um, We have a few communication theories that really truly are not rocket science I remember apologizing a lot that day saying I'm embarrassed to share some of these concepts with you PhD folk because there's a simplicity to many of them. but. I shared the ones that, for me, had been penny-dropping moments that had created meaningful space that had helped, well, you know, when you get your, you get yourself in a conversation where you feel there's no way out. These models were the ones that create space for me. And so, as I went through my list of, would this be useful? Would this be interesting? You, you kept nodding, and so the list got longer about the models and ideas that we were going to share. So, what I remember of the talk is dividing it in two, and it was really, the first three quarters was why are conversations difficult? Let's break down the many different obstacles and um, elements about our bodies and our minds and our culture that make it hard to understand where someone's coming from and listen carefully and listen properly. So we went through lots of that content. And then the second half of it is what what models or tools make, make communication easier? How do we listen to each other more easily? Um, And and the way I thought about that day was that I was throwing a lot of concepts out, hoping that you were writing stuff down so that if something was useful, then you could look up a a resource and dive more deeply into it. It wasn't an exhaustive um, presentation.
1: Yeah, Jennifer, if you don't mind just going through some of the details of that um, around um, maybe three things. One, um the difficult conversations and different identities or belongings that that part that you mentioned to us um perhaps a little bit about the polarity and conversations any any anything that that can lead us in that direction and um the last part of it is some of the 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 tools the the more kind of toolkit portion of the of the of the presentation
2: so thinking about that first chunk of why are conversations helpful, um, one of the concepts that I shared that I remember being useful for your team was that, and this again, it's gonna seem so obvious. And I'll also say, I'm a visual learner. So as I'm describing this to you, I hope you can imagine in, inside all of our torsos, we have a dictionary, <laughs> that's, uh, that's absurd. When you're having a conversation with someone and you're talking about a subject, You ask them to translate language, um, to decode the word, and to understand what they're saying, we have to reference our own dictionary from our own past. Our dictionary is written by our parents, um, our summers growing up, our education, our teachers, uh, what we hear from the pulpit. Um, It is deeply entrenched in the country that we grow up in and the politics and and the worldviews around us. Uh, It reflects our unique life. Um, and you can have a conversation with someone and both be talking about, um, I had a conversation with someone a while ago and it was hilarious because they were talking about going to Disneyland and, and they were talking about Disneyland. I had assumed they were coming at it from a critical societal lens of dystopian um, or utopian euphoric childhood role models that are so just like, I thought they were coming at it from that vantage point and they were coming at it from a worshipful (laughs) vantage point of isn't this the best place ever to bring a family and we my dictionary which has changed over the years and their dictionary were very different and we were talking about different things we do find ourselves sometimes debating issues and and getting a bit hot under the collar and we perceive the situations very differently we are the words and the meaning of what we're talking about can get us onto very different pages. And so why are some conversations difficult? That's an important one to name. But you you did use the word um, polarity, Hector, about um, one of the concepts that I raised. That's a newer one that my team has been reaching into. Um, Some people listening, if this ends up being useful, the guy who came up with not the, the original concept, but who's taken it a bit further for the Christian community is a guy named Tim Arnold. He's from Ontario and has written a book called The power of healthy tensions. His concept is that if we find ourselves at a staff meeting or a committee meeting or uh, sitting around the table with family members, and we're talking and we're again getting red in the face and and uh, people are very, very stuck. It's usually because it's not a matter of who's right and who's who's wrong. I think culturally. We're off we often think about the binary when we want when we consume media there's usually a binary right someone's right and someone's wrong. And if we debate the point well enough, then the other person will have to agree with us and agree yes you're more correct than I am. The problem is, um, Tim would say that the, the polarity concept is that sometimes there are two good values playing out an example of that would be debating whether God is just or God is merciful you think actually he's both and we can think of examples in some situations we might say well this is a time when God would be just and God is just you think yes that's true God is also merciful and and we can get red in the face an example that we had as an agency that I probably shared with you Hector I, but I might have shared it with some other with some other groups many organizations struggled with mask wearing and vaccination at the beginning of the pandemic and I had some staff who have a high tolerance for risk and they're thinking families can't see my face as a therapist it's better for me to not wear a mask so they can see my face so they can be helped other people had other staff members had family members at home impacted by the pandemic they were fearful for their safety and they're saying not only do I need a mask but I need everyone to wear a mask that I'm working with so that I'm safe and so that's a great example of risk versus safety. Everyone knows we act, We do need risk as a community. If we didn't have risk as a community, none of us would ever leave our homes and we wouldn't have society, right? We, we need some risk to make society work and we need safety for society to work. And we can get into lockdown horrible fights trying to say that one principle is more important than the other. And And Tim's modality encourages us to hold in a conversation, or to have space in the conversation to acknowledge what are the values, and even if I disagree, what are the what are the benefits of the other value? I need to acknowledge that the other value has merit before we can move on. So, in terms, he would Tim would say one of the actions of of good listening is to make sure that all voices are heard and have the assumption that all voices have value, and all and all of those. Um, moral values present have a constructive place in the conversation. Um, some days one value might be slightly more informative to a decision. As an agency, I ended up leaning towards safety, both because the province told me to and because I needed everyone to be able to come to work, um, So, and, and it was in our business. So I leaned towards safety on the mask issue, but we've also taken steps towards risk because people were missing each other, so we had some masked in-person staff meetings when we were allowed so so we really have vacillated between safety and risk in ways that we feel are constructive as an organization but polarity is a big one and i often feel like when i'm coming into polarized political debates that's what's playing out right i could talk about some taboo subjects right now um orientation and gender is always the the hot ticket item right now i find it not funny but i remember in the 80s when divorced leaders was the hot touching point or whether women in, in leadership was 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 okay. Those are the litmus tests. And, off, and that polarity, Tim would say, is fidelity to tradition versus openness to, to calling. And Tim Arnold has said, Jesus was holding those tensions. He was holding the law in one hand, saying, I wanna be faithful to the traditions that I am incarnate, that I am growing out of. And I'm gonna break some rules and care for people who have been on the margins. And he was holding that tension. And we likewise as Christians are hold, are called to hold that, to not to not squish one, but to hold them in tandem. So yeah, that polarity piece is, is a really big one. The only other piece I'll say quickly around why some conversations are difficult is that sometimes in, an, in the middle of a conversation, it's like we have a fire alarm going off in our head and we can't think straight. And that happens, I watched that happen I watch that happen all the time when I'm working with families that are in crisis, where they may come to a meeting with the best of intentions, but something happens and their nervous system is on fire. Their fight or flight systems engage. They, they, they are very distressed. They're getting, they're getting squirts of adrenaline and cortisol and they're not able to think straight. And their brain is telling them fight or flight, either freeze or run for it or attack the person in the room. And their frontal lobe, the part of us that God has built that helps, help us think clearly and write poetry and worship God and do our taxes, like the intelligent part of us at the front, that turns off when our, our amygdala, which is this fight or flight center turns on. And that's part. It's, it's a boring part of why some conversations are difficult. But I think it needs to be said that some of us assume that if we're clever enough, and we have a rational enough argument then we can navigate a conversation and we don't realize gosh my blood my my heart is pumping and now my goal is not to have a rational conversation my goal is to destroy the other person's perspective and um, or to run for it and, and and to escape so yeah god has built us with a lot of great healing strategies but some of these parts of us do make it hard to have some of these conversations because for some people those hard conversations are as scary as a bear, right? And when our bodies are built to to manage emergencies and to react in fast, swift ways when when we sense threat. So yeah, those that's a is that is, is are those some of the highlights you remember, Hector?
1: Yes, the, that's exactly what I was hoping for, and I wanted to kind of highlight a few things that you've mentioned um, and perhaps paint a picture of the connection between that and the work we're doing. Uh, at, at CPRC and at ICS in general. So the, the first part of it is, you know, what you mentioned right at the beginning, uh, why is this philosophy school reaching out to us to to do this work uh, when they already are working on the understanding of listening from a philosophical perspective? And I think that the answer isn't what you told us, is really the fact that we, um, we are trusting uh, the wisdom of those people that interacted with us during our colloquium saying we do need to listen in a different way, not only to people outside of our circles, but to other disciplines. Uh, We need to to be able to somehow qualify that wisdom that has emerged in this case, uh, within the mental health realm and um, be able to uh, import some of that into our world uh, so that our practice becomes better, better scholarship, better communal scholarship, better pedagogy, and so on. So that's the first thing I wanted to, to highlight, because you mentioned it in passing, but I think for us it's really central and is, is, is a key learning. Um, the second thing that I wanted to mention is around polarity. We, we are thinking as, as an organization a lot about polarization, because our world is polarized, because our traditions are polarized, and in some ways more than before, um, and we're trying to gather tools to to navigate those polarities and to to allow our community of learning to to think through that to um, to stand there, know that they have a fidelity to something, but also need an openness to something else. And our and, and our conversation with you, I think, gave us a, a good sense of what it's like to just be in that space. Imagine that as a, as a topography, as a landscape. We're standing there and we have all those cross pressures um, that continue to exist. And we uh, and we need to navigate those and learn to understand the world and the world of thought within those um, boundaries. Um, and then the third part of it, and that's connected to the question that I want to ask you now, is the conference we had that we are talking about and, and, and particularly your workshop made us switch the conversation from decolonization from specific um, concerns around oppression to a larger conversation about inhabiting tradition. So what does it mean to look forward into, into the future, carrying that heritage with us and having that heritage speak to us in the future and to the world at large with all the the conversations that that entails, with all the um, disagreements, the polarizations that that are part of inhabiting those multiple traditions. So the question for you is: you you brought it up. You brought up the the, um, the that tension between uh, fidelity to tradition and openness to to new realities. Can you kind of give us more wisdom around that? Your experience. Uh, in in the context of the uh, of the the room of the psychotherapist but also in your work in relational health i know shalem does a lot on caring for faith communities that are struggling through moments of polarization or through schools and uh, places of work that are also going through the same so if there's anything that that comes to mind any examples is there anything that you can tell us
2: uh, yeah we we um the program that we've adopted to do work with communities that are in crisis or that are in conflict or that are wanting to be healthier uh, is it's called restorative practice that was born out of restorative justice Um, it's a model that if i were to boil it down is having a circle of people who are forced (laughs) who voluntarily agree To listen to each other and to listen to each other's version of reality version of how they understand the world to be around a situation. And it's it's carefully engineered the questions are carefully chosen it's there's some wonderful outcomes with this model. But what's what's fascinating is the softening that we go from seeing issues as black and white and binary and who the good guy and bad guy are to huh we're all human beings actually trying our best right now and we all have some goals in mind. Um, but no, one's a monster here. And actually everyone cares about this even, but sometimes from slightly different angles. So I, I do love that model. And, and I guess that's just me saying you're right. We do do that work and, and that work makes space. It's not a polarity model, but it, it definitely is complementary to holding polarities and, and showing that there are two values present in a really hard conflict. But neither of the values are bad. It's like it's like the trucking convoy, right? Uh, very early on, my kids asked me at the dinner table what, what the heck is going on in Canada right now with this convoy going across the country. And I said, well, freedom is good. <laughs> so is community safety. And some people are not feeling heard. And so they're really reacting and they need and they need friends and power to demonstrate how unheard they feel that the value of, of freedom is not being attended to. And so this is this is what happens when large groups of people are not are feeling disenfranchised. Um, not that I'm agreeing with it, and, and I'm not agreeing with any of it. I just thought it was fascinating to watch this object lesson roll down roll down the highway. Uh, if I can step a little bit into philosophy for a second, there is a, a master in my field. Uh, his name was Michael White. He worked and lived in Australia. He created a model. I don't know if everyone would agree that he created it, but he he was a founder of a model called narrative therapy. Um, it's a constructivist model that we as humans create um, language that that forms our reality around us. Um, there's lots of sophisticated underpinnings to it. I'm, I won't do justice to it right now. <laughs> Wishing I had read, reread his book before this conversation, but one of his main concepts I see a lot. I think of a lot. His main concept is we all live within our dominant story. We have a story, think of a circle. We live within the story. This is who I am, this is what I do, these are my people, these are my friends, this is what I listen to, this is, these are the sports I play, this is my reality, this is my story, this is where I come from, these are my people, these are my physical spaces. When we're suffering, that dominant story is no longer useful. That story might be, I am a failure. That story might be, I've let my family down. That story might be, I'm irresponsible and dangerous. And the story no longer allows for life or hope and so practitioners, our job is to develop the alternative story. (laughs) The reason i'm sharing this Hector is we cannot go to the alternative story until the person we're talking to feels as if we have the most robust deep rich understanding of their dominant story, I, I might spend weeks hearing the depth of pain from that story or the or the brutal reality and and tightness and constrictiveness of the story. But something magic happens when I when they finally feel like I get it and I've gotten quite good at getting it faster. I can start and wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be great if this were real for you? Wow. But of course, that's too scary. So let's not go there yet. But um, I can I have permission once I've heard the dominant story to start building else around story. Hope I'm not ruining anyone's psychotherapy for them while I'm telling you about this model. Um, but when you talk about tradition and where does openness come from, that's that's the model that's coming to mind for me. Of we all have, we all are born out of something theologically, and and it's our anchor. The dominant story remains part of everyone's reality going forward. It's the anchor piece of of our story. We just add some additions onto it right we we make the changes and edits to it but tradition is our grounding point it, it is our story it's it's excruciating when you discover that this source of identity or our, our demonst- is a source of pain when when all us white people heard the word decolonization for the first time in the past three years that was a heartbreaking day when when the penny dropped about what that meant and, and what what comes with that word maybe not three years maybe five years it's a bit of a blur not a word I remember hearing for the first time but but that was a heartbreaking day when that when our dominant stories are responsible for other, for harm against others uh, it creates deep deep distress which is again part of why conversations are so hard right now. That's what comes to mind when you say Jennifer, can you comment on tradition and openness? I think yeah we we all need to feel like our own dominant stories, we're being heard and seen. In those restorative circles, we're telling our story and it's only when we feel heard and seen that we can open up our ears to hear the person across the circle from us. And and God is magic. We are built neurologically. I said this in the presentation, didn't I? Didn't I? Hector, if you fell off your chair right now and and made a loud noise and stood up again and, and <laughs> your ICS and I, Colleagues and I saw a bleeding uh, segment, like your forehead bleeding, we would, oh no, we would lunge forward, ask if you're okay, and all of us would have a little, we would have a, a sensation, not the same pain, but we are designed to mirror someone's pain, if you see someone get hurt our brain sends our, our, our own skin a little bit of a, a nudge on on prompting us to respond with empathy. God has designed us to build empathy. When we hear people's stories of pain, um, after we feel heard, we are designed to be able to make space, understand, listen to them, um, and usually are changed. That's the gospel for me. When we hear that we become we become a little bit changed, our understanding grows, our capacity for loving others grows. I I could just keep going. Maybe I should stop right there. You <laughs> tell me if so, if any of that Michael White was useful.
1: I don't think you should stop. This is this is great. Uh, so much here, uh, Jennifer, around like every issue we've been dealing with philosophically and and connecting it to to communities out there, real communities doing that work and. Um, I just the last thing you mentioned just made me think of one of my favorite passages of um, a Roman Catholic uh, documentation. And, you know, I'm I'm a Roman Catholic myself, but I don't identify with a lot of the documents that the church produces. But there is one little bit from a document from the Second Vatican Council that says the joys and hopes, the grief and anguish of the people of our time are the joys and hopes, the grief and anguish of the followers of Christ as well. nothing that is genuinely human fails to find an echo in their hearts um so that idea of that that that, that empathy uh, that is not only uh, not only physical to what you were describing then the uh the bump in the head and feeling that from the other person but but something deeper and then we can't really um resist that that movement to empathy but the connection of that with listening um the fact that you're bringing us back again to the message we heard at the very beginning. If we don't listen to the story, if we don't make an effort to understand the story, um, we will not be able to find new possibilities. And here I, um, I really, I'm hearing from, um, from far away, our, our president, Ron Kuypers, who is a, the philosopher of religion at ICS, Thinking about the connection between possibility and tradition, and and saying many things around that, and hey, also around the anchoring in something that comes to us, but um, that anchor also being what allows us to to make the future more malleable and 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 to, for it to have more plasticity. Um, so. Thank you for that. Um, it's really helpful. I wanted to stop here for a second and maybe give uh, Jimmy and Danielle an opportunity to. If there, is there anything we should we should mention? Is there anything we need to return to?
3: Um, I mean, the thing that comes to mind for me, and it may have also <laughs> come to mind for me in your original presentation, is all of this seems to be premised on a certain kind of mutuality that isn't necessarily always there. Um, in difficult conversations. I just wonder if there's something to be said about that um, because part of the polarization not only seems to be about the topics themselves being difficult but around the whole approach to conversing not being shared in some way not being shared but you know not being um, for the purpose of coming to a shared understanding really it's something that comes to mind um, someone in some position of leadership said that the tactic now politically is just to beat the other person down until they give up, and then you've won. And so like, rhetorically, that seems to be what a lot of people, um, a tactic a lot of people employ, which seems very difficult to have a kind of honest conversation if that's the,
2: (laughs) that's the approach. I honestly, Danielle, your question made me sad. (laughs) Because you're, you're right. You're right that there's a, there's, there's a fantasy, there's the idyllic conversation where two people who are reading the same book, who are having the same penny dropping moments come together and have a reconciling conversation. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And, And that's not the reality we live in. It actually made me think about how one of the interventions or models that I was taught to use with families in the highest, most difficult forms of conflict, we're careful to teach the therapist. You're teaching all this to the parent and the, and they become an ally in working with the child. You're not expecting the same self-awareness and um, an insight and and healthy motivation from both people. Um, and and so parents have to work a lot harder in that model so that they can be a positive agent in the process and I think isn't that the reality that that if this content of peacemaking is important to us as one of our values and we're drawn towards it, we have hard work, and we are working harder um, and if it and if our efforts lead to a conversation, it doesn't feel fair because we've had to work a lot harder to make it a positive conversation and the other person's coming in blind and on autopilot, following the rhetoric of our community that is destructive and binary and um, linear and impunitive, and uh, which is unfortunate or can be. It can be all of those things. It's not always all of those things. One of the thoughts that came up as you, as you asked the question, Danielle, is that we need to find like-minded people who can build this up, who we can talk with and focus our goals with. If we're surrounded only and we're isolated only with people who have difficult rhetoric around us and we're just fighting the fight all day, we're going to burn out. So when I have difficult conversations to go into a, a difficult conversation to have, I make sure I've processed it with a handful of people and I'm feeling buoyed and supported and I have their wind on my kind of behind me as I'm going into a conversation. And I'm really careful with setting up agreed upon goals. That was something I think that we talked about in the first um, presentation is what are our goals for the conversation? Having a goal of consensus may be totally untenable. So having a goal of of greeting someone and listening to their, to how their family is doing and agreeing on the next step of conversation might be the only goal that's possible and, and setting goals that are, that are manageable and realistic. And sometimes it means for much lower things and and it pos- and declining conversations declining difficult conversations is sometimes also a really healthy choice and that's that's part of my fantasy danielle is that you'd be able to do that but i i agree that i think that we live in a fallen world and this is one of the areas that we get some wins and we have some losses and us having our grounding of how am i approaching the conversation what are my realistic expectations can can limit the damage and usually make some space for a different type of conversation even if it's not a great outcome it's better than entering into that terrible back and forth whose value is better than the other um I I would say Tim Arnold that that book that I suggested which is a I'll show you um this is a podcast so people can't see but I'll show you (laughs) the three of you let's see how many pages is it um, before notes it's uh, 75 pages so it's a really quick one, but he talks about going into those difficult conversations and and gives language on. I appreciate that that's your value and I can see all the benefits of why your value is meaningful to you and why that's an important part of this conversation okay. And, and this is what i'm bringing to it, so he actually walks through maybe that's the most practical thing I can say is he gives a model for how to hold those tensions well and and have a respectful discourse even if the outcome isn't great um i like i like the structure that he suggested and i'd be lying if i didn't say i know that some we've used that playbook for a couple of situations at the agency with people it's a pretty strong pretty strong template i'll tell you i don't know if it's okay to tell short stories but uh, a few years ago i had a really interesting experience at queen's park um uh, our, age, our organization joined other organizations to go to Queen's Park for Family Service Day. So Queen's Park, if you're listening to this outside of Ontario, is the nickname we have for our Ontario Legislature Building and uh, located at Queen's Park in, in Toronto. And we sat in question, question period behind the opposition facing the um, the Conservative government. And we watched some pretty terrible behavior from everybody Um, with rhetoric. And the idea was to mock, destroy, belittle each other. It was, it was not, it was not, I I had wanted my children maybe to someday come and work in, in Queens Park. And I decided that day, nope, nope, (laughs) don't even know if I'm going to bring them to watch because this is so terrible. But something fascinating happened. I think it was before that meeting that had changed how I perceived the whole day. And that was, there were, there were some, um, MPs that were or MPPs gathering before question period from all different political parties um, and they were working on a housing resolution together. they were working on a project and they were laughing and high-fiving that might be an exaggeration but they were busy at it amicably um, really getting the work done and I and I actually felt really proud to be a member of Ontario that voted and to be and to be a citizen thinking this is this is what I'm hoping my government's able to do again question period (laughs) grounded me a little bit that sometimes government does not behave all that well but um i share that because i think there i think politics likes to put people on air i think the media i'm i'm a big cbc fan but i but i know saying that polarizes me um with people But i i i have some fondness for lots of parts of media but i'm also mindful they put people on air that are fun to listen to who want to who who get good airplay right and that that pollution has made made it sound like the, um there's much jeopardy in ha- in having discourse and talking and um which is which is terrible especially when the religious community and political communities start start becoming interwoven it's it's added fuel to the fire, which is, again, why are some conversations difficult? Because we're not having those conversations in a vacuum.
1: No, thank you, uh, Jennifer. You're giving us a uh, lot uh, to think about and to um, to bring into our corners of the world. Um, as you're presenting those uh, pictures of what conversations look like or can look like, I uh, imagine two things. On the one side, our um, our tradition our faith tradition evolving as a series of conversations and how those um either express or not the listening to one another because there are those groups there are those polarities within our within our tradition but also the scholarly world um in philosophy functioning this same way lots of pollution lots of ideas that are thrown out there without much um um respect or consideration of what those ideas do to the to the world or to the person that is on the other side of it and and if if anything our our hope to decolonize our little corner of this all is is a hope to um remove some of that pollution and to produce and to um voice only things that consider as much as possible those who are affected by those ideas um i think that that's a bit of the work that we're trying to do at cprc at ics i know that's the work that shalim does as well so um we do thank you for for taking the time jennifer to be with us uh to tell us the story about why our conversation so so difficult sometimes uh again uh for our listeners and uh, for the continued collaboration. So uh, we hope to have you here again and to listen to more of what is happening in the Shalim world as Shalim keeps moving through polarizing and polarized times.
0: And that brings us to our final segment. What's your pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. the movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Hector, what's your pleasure? Well,
1: Jimmy, I've been uh, I think I've said this before in the podcast, but i it just really is important for me to repeat it. Uh, watching soccer, on um, TV. I like. I fought my my uh, eh, my desire to watch soccer for the longest time. I thought that that was my thing. That was my dad's thing, and now it's returning to me with a vengeance. I really want to watch it all the time. I every Sunday religiously. I watch it while I'm cleaning the house. Uh, the World Cup happened during uh, during the winter, and I watched every single game, or I had it in the background while I was working. Um, so that's that really has been my pleasure. And trying to analyze the game and do that, like trying to see what the vision of the players is while they are uh, while they are getting through the ninety minutes of uh, of the match. So that is my pleasure these days. What about you, Jimmy?
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, so my pleasure is. Um this book club that I've joined recently uh, with my friend uh, from university. So I graduated from uh, King's last year in 2022. And ever since I graduated, I found that it was like a lot harder to stay in touch with my friends. And that's something I'm not uh, that good at. It was really easy when we were in school together. We were just hanging out at school every day. But as soon as that was over, I just found it so hard to reach out regularly and stay in touch with people. But uh, one of my friends who's uh, doing his master's degree over, out in uh, B.C. this year, he had the idea to start an online book club on Discord. So we've been doing that for the last month and a half or so, and it has been the best. Uh, The book we're reading is Moby Dick by Herman Melville, which is a huge, gigantic book written by this 19th century American author. But I've really been enjoying it, especially since it's one of those books where um, the narrator periodically goes on these philosophical tangents throughout the book that sometimes have to do with the stuff that's happening in the narrative and sometimes doesn't. And yeah, it's just excellent. Great. Is this something ongoing? Yeah, this is ongoing. We've been meeting every two weeks and just assigning a few chapters and everyone reads it, hopefully, and comes prepared to discuss it. And we usually just hang out after discussing the book too and just get caught up and everything. So That's it for our show this week. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on www.icscanada.edu. And if anything from today's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. at You can also find ICS on Twitter as at INSCHR. And from the heart of
1: ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can find us on the podcast app of your choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on the radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.